On the list of instructions that Pastor Mike gave me, it says, introduce Brian and Bonnie. And I told them my introduction for them was going to be short, because then I know it'll be accurate. They have, this is their third time here. Every time they have been here, they have brought not just information, they have brought something the Holy Spirit has wanted us to hear. So I, I ask you to listen. Listen with your natural ears and let your spirit be open. That little aha when God speaks to you. They live in a town called Dudney, and I don't know where that is either. Dudney is there many miles away, and when you get to Dudney, there's a big blueberry patch. Serious? Okay, you go into the blueberry patch, that is where they live. Okay, so underneath some rocks. Uh, great place for their boys. They've got five boys. They are here to speak. Bonnie, would you come and you can fill in anything I said wrong about your intro. Let's welcome them, church. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yes, we do live on, um, we're just renting an acreage of a blueberry field where farmers work the field and then they say, go and pick as much as you want. So yesterday we went out for like 20 minutes and just loaded up and it is a beautiful thing. Yeah, we're going to make it through the winter, store up on, store the berries um, so yes, my name is Bonnie, if we've never met before, or if you weren't here the last times we have been here, it's an honor to be back with you guys. Um, this is my husband, Brian, and then we have some friends with us who are part of our union team, Manuel and Sarah. Can you guys wave at least? We've been friends with them for over, over a decade. Before any of us were married, then we were friends. And then Sangeeta is here as well, who's also a dear friend of ours. So they, because um, we, the union, that's... Um, if you haven't heard us talk about it before, our goal is not just that Brian and I just carry this message, though it's, it's in our hearts for sure, but it's also because we want to multiply, um, the, multiply a, an opportunity for people to share their true stories of what God has done in restoration in their lives, bringing healing in the area of sexuality and relationships. And so it's a union because it's more than just one. It's a collective of voices about this matter. So yes, we are, we're going to talk about sex. We talk about relationships. We talk about awkward things. And you guys have brave leaders and pastors who say, yeah, sure, come multiple times in a year and make our people awkward. That's fine. And I'm, I'm equally awkward. I guarantee it. I, if I blush, it's legit. Like, uh, but I believe that these type of topics are on the heart of God. And you, and when you look through the scriptures, God is not afraid to talk about it because it know, he knows it matters to our lives. And it, um, it's actually like, it's pivotal. It's life or death when it comes to areas of relationship and sexuality. This is the making or breaking of nations. And so God has an opinion about it. And the church has to find that way to, to have grace and love and truth and hold, both, hold all those things, just like what Jesus did when he came on the earth. So uh, just to give you an, a personal update about our lives, we in the spring made an made the announcement along with our church at Hill City Church in Abbotsford um, that we're our church is going to be planting a campus in Mission, which Dudney is just like 10 minutes from Mission. And Brian and I, as well, um, along with another team, we're actually going to be the lead pastors out there. So that's going to be an exciting, exciting challenge and exciting times ahead. So the goal is to plant that in the fall and, and just kind of, we're already seeing the Lord has been orchestrating it and we're really excited to I don't know, just to bless mission, truthfully. We want mission to be glad that we're there and to um, influence the city for, like, and make it look more like the kingdom on earth. So, yeah, so if you be praying for us, you know, as you drive through mission or as you think of us, just pray for us as we 
um, step into this new thing. So, yes, we have five. We have five sons, Samuel and Micah, Haddon, Charlie, and Kate. Those ones are 10, and the youngest one is four. And we were just hanging out with some friends last night who have little ones, like like a five-month-old and then a toddler and all in diapers. And it's just, like, totally different. You know, like where they're, the one is, like, eating watermelon, and it's just, like, dripping all over the place. And I was like, right, that is a thing. Yeah, I forgot. Like, now mostly, mostly food stays in their mouth. Anyway. And the kids are pretty good too. Anyway, so I'm just kidding. Okay, so today we wanted to we wanted to talk as I was praying about what to share. Um, the story of Gideon came to mind. I just felt the Holy Spirit say, "Gideon, talk about Gideon," um, and we've titled it a win-win situation. So if you've grown up in the church, or if you've been around, or you've read the Bible, Judges chapter six is in the Old Testament. It's an Old Testament story. I'm going to give you a bit of a background on it, but I want to talk about an element of Judges or of this story in the book of Judges that doesn't get included in the Sunday school version of this story. So what has happened is the people of Israel um, have come into the, into the promised land, the land of Canaan. They've occupied a whole bunch of the land, but they actually haven't driven out all of the enemy armies that are there. One of the, one of the tribes, or it's not just a tribe, it's like thousands and thousands of people, is the Midianites. And these Midianites start to oppress the people of Israel, and uh, that's where the story of Gideon picks up. Gideon is hiding in a wine press. It says that the Midianites were so, they were so numerous that whenever the Israelites would harvest anything, the Midianites would just come in and clear it out. Like a, it said they referred to them as locusts. Like they would just take, they would oppress Israel by taking away all their resources. So Gideon is like trying to keep them by hiding. He's like working with the um, with the grains hiding so that nobody takes it from him. I, I'm like, I don't know if I have time to go through the whole story, but basically it's this miraculous story of how God calls Gideon. Gideon's afraid, but God's like, hey, valiant man, um, you're going to lead the people into victory. And Gideon says, what? That's crazy. I don't think I can do that. And he's like, don't be afraid. Come on, I'm going to show you how to do it. Gideon asks for a sign, the fleece. God delivers and like kind of makes it clear, yes, Gideon, I am calling you. There's three, he ends up, they had th- he actually had thousands of Israelite soldiers, warriors, but he ends up, God says, no, that's too many. Let's bring it down to a s- smaller number. So it becomes very clear that this is a miraculous victory. So he gets it down to 300. So it's 300 soldiers against thousands and thousands of Midianites. And God says, yep, that looks about right. <laughs> Um, and it ends up there. It ends up being an incredible victory, using unconventional strategies of war, like blowing trumpets and smashing jars. That was their only thing. And then the enemy army turned on itself, and Israel was free. So that's the that's the story that we normally hear. Can you you guys just nod at me if you've heard that story before? But there's a portion that we jump over sometimes that I want to talk about today. In um, I'm just going to look at the verses here. I was in Joshua. I need to go to Judges. Judges chapter 6. So it says here, So when God first comes to him, and he says, You're a mighty man, Gideon. The first says in verse 25, Now on the same night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and a second bull, seven years old, 
and pull down the altar of Baal, which belongs to your father, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of this stronghold in an orderly manner, and take a second bull and offer a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah, which you shall cut down. So then Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had spoken to him, because he was too afraid of his father's household and the men of the city to do it by day, he did it by night. So it's like, okay, what does that have to do with... I remember reading stories about the idols in the Old Testament. And I remember reading about like, how God would say, when you go into this, this country, Israel, this land, make sure that you don't worship the false gods. And I used to think, why is God so insecure that he can't handle little wooden statues? I don't really understand, God. I wouldn't have said that out loud, right? But that was me, my perspective as a kid. But what I didn't know is what these idols represented. Baal and Asherah, I don't know if any of you have studied this. You see it all throughout the Old Testament, and you see even, you'll see reflections of it, or like the names change, but it's still present in the New Testament with the church there. But Baal and Asherah were the, were the pagan deities of the land. And I'm like, I think that there's no children in here, so I think I'm safe. Um to say, speak openly, but these gods and goddesses were worshipped with sexual, sexual immorality. They were the god and goddess of fertility because, I mean, the land and the people, they needed to be fertile in order to be strong. They wanted lots of children in order to have strong armies. They wanted to have, and then they wanted great crops. So it was kind of like this, I would say, demonically inspired, but human created system of worship where the men and women followed the lusts of their own flesh and called it worship to these false god systems. And so I'm like, ooh, heavy. Did you know what you were coming to church for this morning? <laughs> this really matters, and God talks about it a lot. And so, in, so here's what's crazy, is that in order for there to be a miraculous victory for Gideon, the first thing that had to happen was a demolishing of these altars. And was, I think it's so interesting. So Gideon, it says he was even afraid of his father and the other men of the city. So he did it at night. He kind of knew, I need to, to kind of like break these places of worship. Not just these places of worship out there. You know, oh, those Midianites, they're so bad. Got to break their altars. Gideon goes, no, in my own backyard, in my own family, this generational immorality, I need to pull it down. And it says that the people did end up getting mad at him. So these ones who were supposedly worshiping Yahweh, the true God, they did get mad at Gideon. And they said, how dare you take down our systems of worship? How dare you tell us what to do with our sexuality? And then it Fortunately, Gideon's dad stands up for him and he goes, listen, if Baal's really God, Baal can defend himself. Let him fight against Gideon. And then, and then Gideon goes on to gather the army and to defeat the Midianites in this incredible, miraculous way. It's an overlooked aspect to the story is that the tearing down of idolatry in his own backyard is what released regional freedom.
we need to know that God is not insecure when it comes to matters of worship. He doesn't ask for our whole heart because he is insecure. He knows it's for our good. So when the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin, and we want the nation of Canada to come to a place of reformation, but first, we need to find reformation in our own backyards, in our own lives. So God's not insecure. He knows what is good for us, and he knows what will bring us life. We can't, so me as a young person, I thought he was insecure, but most likely I was just putting on to God who I was. I was making God in my image. And we can't do that. It says in Revelations 2, I'm going to jump over there. It's a letter that's written, um, kind of like a prophetic message to the church of Thyatira, which is a place in Asia. Um, and I'm just going to read a portion of it to you. It says, and to the, so for, starting in verse 18, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze, say this, or he says this, I know your deeds, church, your love and your faith and your service and your perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than they were at first. But I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel. Now that it's not talking about one woman as though she's the enemy. It's actually talking more about an atmosphere or a spirit or like an attitude of immorality. Jezebel was, the, was one of the women who actually, in the Old Testament, really brought in a lot of the worship of Baal and Asherah. So when, he says, so when the Bible says Jezebel, they're not talking about one person. They're talking about a, a system of kind of, I, I want to do whatever I want to do with whoever I want to do it. And you can't tell me no. She calls herself a prophetess. She teaches and leads my bondservants astray so they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Now, if we drop down into verse 26, so that ta- and then it talks about the judgment, again, not of an individual woman, but of a, of a system of like, that system's going to break. It doesn't sustain anybody. Anyone who's engaged in that system for a long time, you know like that it doesn't actually bring life. That system's going to be broken. But it says in verse 26, and here is a promise to the church. He says, he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. That is the promise to the church and to individuals that when you overcome temptation, lust, the pressure, as something I was praying for you guys, even as I was preparing this week, is it that there would be an increase in wisdom and love to navigate temptation and social pressure to conform. If you will overcome and hold to the end, you will have authority in the nations. And this was something we're working on with this ministry, the union, and we're trying to bring messages of hope and of, of restoration from, from pain, from negative sexual experiences. And I think sometimes I go, am I making a difference, God? Have anyone else ever, in your obedience to God, you wonder, is this going to make a difference? And so I went into this um, shop in Abbotsford, um, where, and I know that one of my friends, or she's like an acquaintance, we're getting to know each other, and she's a believer as well. I knew that she, she works there on Thursdays, and I stopped in there, and, and she just said, how are you doing? And I was like, well, truthfully, I'm feeling discouragement today, just wondering if I'm making a difference. 
And she said, you know what? I was talking to you, and she mentioned this other woman that, who's like a mutual friend of ours, and this other woman she mentioned is not a believer at all. She actually had a, a, a brutal situation where she was involved in a, a very controlling, more like a cult environment. And what this girl, this woman, said to Belinda, who works at the store, she said, do you know that I had almost lost my faith? Um, but then I, I saw Brian and Bonnie's marriage, and it gives me hope. I, I totally cried right there. And it's not, I'm not even bringing that up of like, look at us, because like, we, if you come to, we'll tell you we're not perfect. <laughs> we, I can, you know, I can tell you all about it. We are not perfect, but we are committed. And we are working to, we are committed to purity in our relationship. We're committed to integrity. This is, I know this is so many of your stories as well. And just that, why is it that marriage, that love, that purity in a relationship somehow lets other people have faith? Why? Why? Because people can, because people look at our families, they look at our relationships, they look at our marriages, they look at single people who are living so different than what the world tells them will bring them happiness, and they say, that is supernatural. Because can, purity is not just the absence of something. Purity is the substance of something. Just like a light breaks darkness, I believe purity can break uncleanness in an atmosphere. So when you make those hard choices, you actually are shifting atmospheres. And so, for, so the, I just thought, Lord, for that one, man, that's worth it. God, all these decisions, all these hard choices. But somebody says, I almost lost, lost faith. I didn't even, I don't know if, I didn't know if there could be a God. But I have hope. I'm, and she's going to figure it out. And it's a journey. Of course it is. So to the one who overcomes, you get authority in the nations. Maybe it starts with you get authority in your family. They look at you and they know you're different. You get authority in your neighborhood, in your workplace. You get authority in your city. You get authority in the nation and beyond. Just sounded like Buzz Lightyear there. And beyond. <laughs> it said, um, I was looking at um, statistics in Canada. Uh, because last, last week I was on Instagram, and I'm kind of just scrolling through some of my friends' stories, and one of my friends had featured the story of a man in Iran who was, had been persecuted for his faith, um, lashed 80 times for taking communion. And he said, I'd do it again. I will do it again. I will take communion again. And then that, that post said, We've now, they've now found, they thought there was only 1.2 million Christians in Iran, but now they're tracking this 8.2 million. And that's 10% of the population now is Christian in Iran. That's beautiful. And my oldest son was with, with me, and he goes, what's the percentage of Christians in Canada? And I thought, I don't know. I thought probably less than that, based on the, what it feels like, the atmosphere here. 67.3% of Canadians claim to be Christian or to have Christian affiliation. 26% being Protestant. And I thought, my, and my son, he's a little bit prophetic. He goes, oh, so maybe those are like Christians. <laughs> my 10-year-old. And I was like, I think you're right. We're, we forfeited a level of authority, haven't we? We haven't forfeited our authority because maybe people are cheating on taxes, though you should not be doing that. 
We're not forfeiting our, our authority maybe because we're speeding, though we shouldn't be doing that. We forfeit authority in this area where now instead of the names of Baal and Asherah, we call it humanism, tolerance. We call it acceptance. And, and let me be super, super clear, I'm talking to the church right now. This is not a message that I would preach out, like, to people who don't claim to follow Christ. We, we have a message of purity for the church. And we live that, and we can't, we're not going to judge, and we're not going to throw stones at anyone. Do you understand? Like, so I just want to make that clear. When I say in the name of tolerance, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be tolerant or that should, we should reject anybody. I'm not saying that. But that word tolerant has become something that it has an underlying tone to it. Does that make sense? So are we individually, we need to take ownership over ourselves. Are we individually walking in purity? Are we living in wholeness and restoration, even free from the shame of the past? So are we making real decisions that are walk, coming, bringing us one step closer in this journey of following Christ and his standard for our lives? Are we doing that? And are we learning how to let the healing of the Lord come into the places of the past? Or are we just pretending that everything's fine? Because we sure can't, can't do that, hey? There can be idolatry set up in our own backyards that needs to be knocked down, just like Gideon did, in order to begin to release nationwide reformation, a breaking of oppression. How do we do this? Well, 2 Corinthians 10, I'm going to go there. Is everyone doing okay? Because I'm seeing nodding. <laughs> I know this, can, this is super, it can be heavy. But it's really hopeful and exciting because oppression can end. Internal, people's lives can be transformed. Yeah. Yeah. Even just, I mean, Sangita, our dear friend. She, you should ask her her story of how oppression was ended in her life because of the love of Jesus. She'll tell you. Sarah and Jaime, same thing. Brian, myself, oppression has ended. I'm sure, I'm sure a bunch of you as well. Your lives have been transformed. And the world needs to hear about it. There is hope. There is a living hope in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3 to 5 so this is, though we walk in the flesh, so this means, this isn't talking about the flesh of like, like how sometimes in the Bible, in English, it'll say flesh and it will be, it'll be referring to kind of like the, um, almost like the internal appetites of the flesh, like, uh, and the selfish appetites of the flesh. But this word here in the original language actually has more just to do the, literally our bodies. We literally, we're walking in bodies, um, flesh and blood. But it says, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare, they're not of the flesh. They're not even visible sometimes, right? Invisible weapons. But they are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God. We're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So I just want to show some of those words in there. For the weapons, in the Greek it says for the tools, the instruments, and the offensive, not like we're going to offend people, but we're on the offense, not on the defense, the offensive tools 
and weapons of our warfare, that warfare is of our expedition, of our campaign. They're not of the flesh, but are divinely powerful. They're able, they are mighty, they are excelling in something for the pulling down or the demolition of fortresses. Now, that word fortresses has, is like the word castle, or it could refer to anything on which one relies. And these things are all actually found in the mind, because then it goes on to talk about um, the speculations and every lofty thing that is raised up. And it talks about taking captive our thoughts. And this is so hopeful and incredible, is that our minds actually have... Um, once you, you kind of can create habits of thinking, and sometimes you feel like you're stuck in them. But it's never impossible to turn that around. There's this really awesome book. I'm not through it all yet, but Dr. Caroline Leaf in the book called Switch on Your Brain. If you need to write that down, it's really awesome. She talks about neuroplasticity, and it's the ability of the brain to tra- be transformed. So when God is talking about the transforming of your mind, it's, a really, it's actually a really practical thing where every day you get to decide what you're going to think about, how you're going to think, and how you think impacts how you live. And so how you think about what it means to be a man, what you think about what it means to be a woman, what marriage really is supposed to be, what a sex life really is about, what children are for, what marriage should feel like, um, what it would be like to, you know, like what a, a pure single person, what their life could be like. Those thoughts, you can shape them based on the word of God and not based on the culture around you. Not based on the Baal and Asherah worship that's just been renamed into humanism. So every day, you get to pull down those, um, those strongholds in your mind. The things that you rely on, they're there. And we, and we also can do it by confessing to one another. We have to confess to one another. Not just confessing what you've done, but sometimes confessing what's been done to you, sometimes confessing what's been said to you, sometimes even confessing what you're afraid of, things that are just coming against you. You find people in a community where you get to be honest, and by confessing those things, it actually can start to break the power of it in your mind. And they can track that. Like you can, scientists, like neuro, I can't even think of the word, neuroscientists, they can see what happens in your brain when you make decisions like that. So, so Gideon with men, you know, they tore down altars and strongholds. We tear down altars and strongholds in our own mind. And then our lives become a testimony of what love really looks like. And it makes a difference in the nation. So um, Brian's going to come and he's going to share a, pe- a piece that he really felt. But I just want to say I felt a few things um, these might be really practical challenges, is that some of you need to go back to your wedding vows and say them again. Some of you are going to need to confess temptations to your parents. Some of you need to repent to your teenage children for having a double standard in the home. Some of you may need to downgrade to a flip phone until your addiction is broken and your heart is healed. Some of you may need to break up with a girlfriend or boyfriend because you're not walking righteously together. If that hits any of you, I'm like... I hope you know that my heart is, is for restoration. But these are the things that we can do to bring life back into, into us. Does that make sense? So Brian's going to come now, and he's um, going to close things. Awesome. Thanks, Paul. Just a couple of scriptures to you, and then we're going to actually do communion together. How awesome is that? Get to remember what Jesus has done for us in the restoration and healing. And... Um, 
But in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 1, Paul's writing to the church in Thessalonica. That's a fun, that's a fun city name, eh? Thessalonica. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God. Your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. Just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you, For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but God who gives us his Holy Spirit. Or in in this translation, gives his Holy Spirit to you. Everybody say to me. See, it's interesting. We, We want to separate the topic of sexuality from the gospel. And from the work of atonement in our lives. like Because Jesus, He dies on the cross for our sins. And we know that through Him we have everlasting life. And we'll be glorified. But how many know there's, a couple, there's some space in between? But between point A, you coming to know Jesus and you having right standing before God and your sins being forgiven and you being justified just as if you never sinned and you dying and going to heaven, you know there's some distance in between those two points. Well, what about those two points? What about that space in between? And a lot of times we live, oh, well, Jesus died for my sins over here, and I'm going to live with Him in heaven forever, and I can live any way I want in between, because point A, Jesus died on the cross. Yes, that is true. Jesus died on the cross, but He also died for your sanctification. That you and I would be continually washed, we'd be continually transformed as we know Him, as we experience Him, as we partake of His likeness, as we encounter Him. See, I I find it interesting that Paul makes this connection that if you're living in lustful passion, you're living like the Gentiles who do not know God. So I have it bears the question is if we as the church, if we look at the stats and the areas in our lives, if we look at just the the information that would say how much pornography is is all over the church and how much, you know, divorce rates and stuff like this, are we real do we really know Jesus? That's a question you've got to ask yourself. Do do I really know Jesus or have I just said yes at the end of a prayer at some point in time, but am I am I really a partaker of his likeness? That's a hard word. Well, it's something we need to ask ourselves. If we're, if we're 67, 67%, was it 67%? 67% people claiming to be Christ followers, yet the abortion rate is skyrocketing. Yet immorality seems to be the norm. Kind of begs a question. What, what are we defining as a Christian these days? Is it someone who's 
looking more and more like Jesus every day. And sure, we struggle, and sure, we have, we have trials, but they're being renewed. They're being transformed. They're partaking of His likeness and being made into the image of Jesus. That's, that's the reality that Jesus died for. That's actually the will of God for your life. You want to know what the will of God is for your life? The million-dollar question, what does God want me to do? He wants you to look more and more like Jesus. Isn't that amazing? And see, see here's the thing. It's a process, right? See, in, in a moment, because of your faith being put in Jesus, the, the nation of your life was instantly liberated. But how many of you know, just like when a, when a country is liberated by some sort of evil dictatorship, there's little pockets in nations that are still, maybe they're, they're under the covering of the new nation, but there's still a stronghold there. And see what the Holy Spirit wants to do in your life is start to walk through these areas in your life and begin to unlock the doors to some of those places and start to bring the, the liberty that is being experienced over the entire nation in that specific region. And I think sometimes we do such a harm to people that we're leading when we separate sexuality and we're not willing to talk about it because you and I know we live here. We, we, we live in a world that is corrupted. Like, if you're breathing and you have a heartbeat, you've experienced the brokenness of immorality in our nation. It's like, how many times have you gone on the computer and seen something that you didn't ask for? Because it's that, it's that voice, it's that spirit in our nation saying, you will worship me. You will, wor- you will worship me. If we look in Luke chapter 7, just as we close here, there's this amazing story, and, and I, I, for the sake of time, I'm just going to give you the Brian New International paraphrase version. Is that okay? So Jesus comes into a city that's called Nain. Well, the meaning of Nain actually means beautiful. That's interesting. But in, in Nain, there's actually a funeral procession that's taking place. There's actually a young man that has died. So in the place that is meant to be beautiful, there's actually death. Jesus comes into the city and we see in verse 14, He says He came up and He touched the coffin of the young man. And the the bearers came to a halt. Isn't that amazing? Jesus has the ability to walk right in the middle of your life where there might be a pull of death, there might be a pull of immorality that is pulling you to sacrifice the destiny and purpose that God has for your life. Jesus has the power to walk right into the middle of that place and touch that coffin and say, young man, I say to you, arise. There was a, there was a reason he didn't just say, hey, young man, young men, general, is because I think he's saying to us today, I want you to arise. Young man, old man, young woman, old woman. I want you to arise. He steps right into that place. He touches that coffin and says that the dead man sat up and began to speak up. Church, we need to speak up. Not just with a pointed finger saying you're the problem. We need to speak up and say, can I tell you what Jesus did for me? When I got real, when I, when I opened up that door and I said, Jesus, come in here. I, I, there's, there's shame, there's guilt, there's pain, there's confusion in this area. When I was willing to open up that door, can I tell you about that Jesus who liberated my life here? 
I was confused about my gender. I was confused about my identity. I was confused about my sexual attraction. I was confused about so many different things. But Jesus came in and He brought peace and He brought clarity and He brought liberation. Can I tell you about that Jesus? That is the voice that we need to raise up if we are wanting to see our nation transformed and the kingdom of Canada become more and more like the kingdom of God. Because church, the silence is deafening. I love this. This is a crazy verse, but I love it in verse 16. It says, fear gripped them all. In other words, awe, reverence, a holy fear gripped everybody at what just happened. And it says, and it began to travel throughout their land that the great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. This report concerning him went out all over Judea and in the surrounding district. One man's story, one, one encounter with Jesus spreads over an entire region. Man, I feel like God wants to take your story and blast it like a trumpet to see transformation in our region. I want, I want to tell you this. God is not ashamed of your sexual brokenness. God is not embarrassed of your pain. And listen, if you're here today and, and you're dealing with abuse and you've experienced torment for years, feeling worthless and dirty for things that were done to you that you did not even ask for, I want, you to tell that, I want you to know that Jesus is not asking you to repent for the things that were done to you. He is saying, don't try to repent for the things that have done for you. It is not your responsibility. Daughter, son, there is mercy for you. There is cleansing and there is healing for you. Today can be a new day. And I want to encourage you as we, as we step into a time of communion here, it's so important that we examine ourselves. God, am I, am I tolerating am I tolerating an altar in my life that doesn't belong to you? God, am I, am I, worship, am I, am I really worshiping you, Jesus? Or am I just worshiping a version of myself that I just call Jesus? Am I just worshiping my own desires? Am I just worshiping my own wants, my own lustful pullings? Or am I really worshiping you, Jesus? And as we do that, as we examine ourselves, we ask him, now, Lord, come and I I surrender that place. And I repent for any involvement, any, any, any choice that I've made to allow that place to not be inhabited and not be inhabited by you. And I invite you to come and take that place in my heart. That's how we're transformed. That's how we're changed. That's how we're set apart and made into the image of God. So I'm just going to invite Dwight to come up. He's going to lead us in communion. Thank you so much.